If you brought a copy of Scripture with you, you can find Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, as we, can, we begin really in earnest as we laid a foundation in Scripture last week uh, in this series, Issues and Inspiration. And this particular installment is brought to you by one of our one of our forefathers of the Reformation who said these words, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of truth of God except precisely what the world and the devil are attacking in that moment, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. So we're talking today about racism and the church. And in this message, I'm going to briefly do six things. That's probably five too many for some of you. Oh, well. I, I think somebody told me a week ago after I preached, I said, geez, uh, you know, we're going to have some good debates on this. I thought, debates with you? I'm not even sure. I'm, I'm still debating with myself. Anyway, that said, here are the six things. Are you ready? We're going to define the issue. We're going to see it in history, past and present. We're going to see it from a minority perspective, best we can. We're going to challenge biblically the Western individualistic mindset. We're going to give universal biblical truths for Christians and non-Christians alike. And we're going to see how the church should respond to racism. That said, I ask for grace and openness today from you. You that are here and those of you watching online. Grace for me and openness to the Holy Spirit and his promptings in your life. With that said, Acts chapter 17 in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. What an interesting way of putting it from Paul, huh? And find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now, if you are an astute person toward what's going on in history, you know that this last Thursday was a big milestone day for our country. It was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the invasion of Normandy, uh, the freedom of, and the victory in World War II. Uh, one year, within a year after D-Day that we celebrated on Thursday, we had liberated all of the death camps, and there were several of them, where six million Jews, other ethnicities were killed too, but predominantly Jews, six million of them, decimated, exterminated, murdered. Let me ask you a question. Who was guilty of all of those murders? Was it Hitler? Was it the architect Himmler? Was it Heinrich? Was it the commandants of the camp? How about the guards that were in the camp? 
how about the civil leaders that were in the cities near the camp? And how about the people in those cities? I think there is culpability all the way across the board. Did you know that Patton, our general, at gunpoint marched the city of Weimar up to Buchenwald, marched them up that hill, and made them look at those stacks of corpses so that they could feel a sense of culpability. That was the reason they did that. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Are you telling me, are you going to say the shopkeeper in Weimar had the same level of guilt as Hitler? No, I'm not saying that at all. Not at all. Don't misunderstand it. In fact, any more than, any more than Pilate, who was talking with Jesus, if you'll remember the dialogue, it's in John 19, Jesus said to Pilate, the one who delivered you to me has the greater sin. Have you ever read that? That's a fascinating statement. Fascinating statement. Because the term greater is an adjective of comparison. He wasn't saying that Pilate wasn't guilty. He didn't have the same culpability. He was culpable, but not on the same level as Caiaphas, who'd handed him over. Interesting. Please say that's interesting. Thank you. So here's the first thing I want you to see, is that low responsibility is not no responsibility. We were in vacation Bible school this last week, pure insanity. <laughs> a lot of energy exuding from all of us. And so in the middle of it, I was, I, was, I was hungry. I was emaciated. I know I don't look very emaciated. But I snuck into the kitchen and very, very carefully opened up. You know how you can peel back the Oreo things now? You know, you can do it and it doesn't even look like it's been opened. Opened it up, took out three, put it back, slid it back with the rest of them. Safe and sound. Three Oreos stolen. The very next day, the staff, 23 of us, get a text message. Someone has taken three packs of Oreos. I mean, as soon as I hear this, my, 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 you know, my, all of my excuses start, my inner lawyer cry. I mean, I go to the person running the kitchen. I said, look, I didn't take three packs. I took three Oreos, really only three. But low responsibility isn't no responsibility, right? Because that's, that's as much levity as we're going to get here today. So here we go. Racism. Let's define it. It's a very sensitive subject, as well it should be. Attributing moral superiority of one racial ethnicity over another. That's how I'm defining it. I like short definitions. That's the best one I can give you. Okay? I grew up in a racist community. Just full disclosure, I'm a Waterloo kid. I grew up in Waterloo, Iowa the largest African-American population in the state of Iowa, highly racist, has a history of violence, white on black, black on white. In fact, just last fall, the Des Moines Register just affirmed it's still that way. And this little boy was shot in the stomach. When I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, uh, I was, I'm a 70s guy, and, and, uh, and the racism was so bad, they had to move the East-West annual high school football game to Saturday mornings because there was always a knifing or a gun battle one way or another. I tell you that because here, in all of that toxicity that I grew up in, it affected me. I was a racist. I told the jokes 
I had the patronizing comments. Totally guilty. So just to let you know, I'm with you. Many of you. But in 1982, God changed my heart through the gospel. And by the way, anyone who claims to have their heart changed by the gospel and remains a racist, you are, in the words of John, a liar, and his word is not in you. In 1986, I, was a, I became the pastor of a little country church, and I would often do Q&As. I would sit in the pulpit, stand in the pulpit on Sunday nights, and people would fire questions from the Bible at me. I loved doing that. Uh, and uh, very early on, there were some new Christians. They were younger, and the church was starting to grow with newer Christians. And one of them asked the question, so, Pastor, what is your take on white people marrying black people? And I didn't equivocate. I didn't hesitate. My response was quick. I said, I'd rather my daughter marry an African-American dude who loved Jesus than a white dude who doesn't. And across, and, and, and the young ones all, yeah, amen. But the older ones just stared at me. And in fact, I was cornered by one or two to be told, uh, I, I guess I needed to be schooled on, uh, the, the, on the curse of Ham. I said, oh, please school me. The curse of Ham occurs in Genesis 9, Noah's son Stares, sees him in his nakedness. He's cursed. He goes down. He's from Cush. Cush is south of, of, of uh, Egypt. This is, the, this is the home of the African man, and therefore the blackness is, is a result of the curse. This is pure, unadulterated racism. And I let him know that. I mean, he said, well, you know, they, we, you know pastor, you know, I mean, the, the cardinals and the, and the robins, they don't get together. What the heck is this all about? I had to deal with this constantly, and did, and I'm thankful that some of them and their hearts were changed. Now, fast forward to 1991. Since 1991, there have been 12 major or serious race riots in the United States, just since 1991. And the, one, the most recent one was in Ferguson. You guys remember the Ferguson, Missouri riots? They're still fresh on our minds just five years ago. Discrimination, profilings, and underneath all of it was this desire for equal rights. Now, white Americans say, we, we tend to say, look, you're in the same system as I am, black dude. You're in the same system as I am, Asian dude. You're in the same system as I am, Hispanic dude. Take advantage of it. But, and here's where some of you will disagree. To many a non-white, the system is rigged. And their response often is, we don't have the social power that white people have. And I think that to be a generally true statement. Let me ask you a question, and you don't need to raise your hand. But how many of you have thought or said, thought or said, I didn't live in the days of slavery. Why am I having to say I'm sorry and pay for another, what, what another generation did? Let me just do this for you. I've, I've done it. I've said it. I've thought it. Guilty. 
Now listen, we love the concept of rugged individualism. We love that. Standing or falling on, on your own is a, listen to this, standing or falling on your own as an individual is a purely Western American thing. That is not what the cultures of this world have lived by for millennia. And this is part of the whole our culture thing I talked about last week. Now, if you, you were with me, with me last week, I talked about the plausibility structure. Do you remember that term I used? It's not a familiar one. So again, the plausibility structure says this. Whatever, you're, you, you and I have paradigms of thinking that are so deeply ingrained in us that we won't even entertain a possible alternative to the way we're thinking. I use the illustration of evolution in many people's minds. But individualism is a big one in our own culture. It's one of those that we've not only bought into, but listen to this, we have assumed to be the noblest of philosophies of life. We love the idea that you can be as great as you dream to be, provided you, know, you were born into privilege or you enacted your uh, education. You put it to use to become the best that you can be. We love that idea. So here's two... 18-year-old men, the whole, their whole lives are in front of them, and they're having a conversation about what they're going to do. And one says he's going to go to this prestigious uh, school to become a doctor. The other says he's going to go to this other prestigious school to become a lawyer, two noble professions. And we would say, good on you, totally, man, go for it. Except that these are two African-American men living in the 1840s. That conversation would never have taken place, much less be ever be dreamed of. Their ceiling was so low, the best thing they could do is just dream of having a good place on the plantation. Now, 50 years later, they're free, right? Or sort of. Have you ever heard of the Jim Crow laws? You should make yourself familiar with the Jim Crow laws. Basically, the Jim Crow laws, which were enacted in the late 1800s and continued on through the, watch it, wait for it, the middle 60s, was legalized discrimination. I don't, I rarely recommend movies, but I do recommend you see The Green Book. Came out last year. It's a great movie. You got to watch it with some discrimination. But you're looking at a facsimile of, of a green book. This was written by an African-American man in the 1940s to the African-American man who would be traveling, particularly in the deep south. And although he's free, he doesn't know how to navigate where to go and not be discriminated, not be harassed. So the book told him about the restaurants, about the hotels, even the gas stations they could go to without being harassed. South, the South that is prior to the Civil War. White Christians argued that slavery was righteous because of, you know, God's curse on Ham, the blackness. They, they considered African-American man to be inferior. And so enslavement was part of God's providence. This is unvarnished white supremacy is what it is. Now listen, America didn't invent racism, but we did feed into the system. 
in his excellent book, which is basically an expose of the lopsided judicial system that we live in, and in a very particular way in the South, but in some ways across the board. Brian Stevenson, in his book, Just Mercy, Just Mercy, great book, uh, talks about these things. In fact, in the book, he says this. He says, to the African-American, particularly in the South, grant you, quote, capital punishment means those without the capital get the punishment. Now, I get it. Racism goes way beyond the whole black, white, American experience. It has literally been happening since sin entered into the wicked hearts of men and women, like me. Some of you are old enough to remember Rwanda, 1994, 25 years ago. I can remember this. The TV splashed this on the screens every single day in Rwanda. You have two tribes, the Hutu and the Tutsis. What happened was in just a three, in just a hundred days, the Hutu had killed over 800,000 Tutsis with machetes, men, women, children, babies floating down rivers. You want to know the irony of all this? The irony of all is they're not even sure, the Hutu and the Tutsis, not even sure what ethnically divides them. It was just pure, unadulterated racism and hatred toward one another. And it's been going on in several other areas, Serbia, you, you name it, in our own short history, recent history. Let me give you four biblical truths pertaining to all men. Four biblical truths pertaining to all men and their destinies, regardless of race, okay? Here's the first one. All people come from one man. And by the way, at any given time you want to amen and encourage me a little bit, that'll be just fine. <laughs> All people come from one man, Adam. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. We already saw that. That's all of us. And well, now listen, listen, not only did we physically come from Adam, we spiritually came from Adam. We know this because the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, therefore through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world and death by sin. So death spread or passed upon all men for all men sinned in Adam. Do you buy that? Do you believe that? Remember that. You got two kids that are fighting. We've seen this. We've seen this played out. Two kids are fighting, and you, you come in, and you confront them. And what happens? One kid says, he started it. And then you, mom, go to the one who started it, okay? And you look at the one who pointed the finger and says, yeah, but did you hit him back? Yeah. Okay. So what are you saying? He may not have started it, but he's still what? He's still guilty, right? Listen, so it is, listen, so it is with our sin in Adam. He started it, we perpetuated it. We are sinners. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And it all started with Adam. Remember this. Because I want to talk to you about the principle of, 
of corporate responsibility versus personal responsibility. Because we live in this Western culture, it's all, I stand on my own merits, I fall by my own demerits, right? So, do you remember the story of Achan in the Bible? How many remember the story of Achan? Okay, some of you don't. So Achan, this is back in the days of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7 records this story. It's a crazy story. I mean, part of the story, you're going, oh, it's just amazing. But there is a part, I remember the first time I read this as a, a new Christian, I, I, was, I was like, what the heck? I couldn't believe it. Because here's what happens. God tells Joshua, the general, to go into Jericho. Remember the story, they circled Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down, like the song says, and they pummeled the place. But God said, when you go in there, you don't take any spoils. All that belongs to me. Right? All the silver, all the gold belongs to me. That's dedicated to me. Don't you personally take any of the spoils. Remember that? But that isn't what happened. Achan coveted some gold, some silver, a Babylonian garment, took it and hid it under his tent. You remember that story? Some of you do. What happened to Achan? He got what? He got stoned. As a result, what happened was, because they'd gone on to a little tiny town of Ai, they didn't win at Ai. In fact, some people got killed at Ai that God revealed through Joshua, through the casting of lots, that it was Achan who had done exactly what God told him not to do. Achan, as a result, gets stoned. But this is where the shocker comes in. And his whole family. His wife's not mentioned, but all his kids get wiped out. It's like, What? I mean, if I sin, if I murder somebody, I go to trial, I get thrown into prison, not my wife and kids, but that's my culture. That's not the culture of the Bible times. That's not even the culture of most of the world today. Look at North Korea. I know the hermit nation is whacked out. I get it. But you know, you do something stupid, you don't just get thrown into prison. So does your wife, your kids, you're about two generations down. They see it as a corporate kind of a thing. And the world outside of the Western world has always looked at things corporately. They see responsibility going beyond the individual. Let me give you another example. Remember Daniel? Daniel chapter 9 is a famous chapter in the Bible for prophecy. That's the, that's the back end. The front end of Daniel 9 almost nobody ever talks about. Here's what's going on. You remember who Daniel was? Daniel was captured. He's, as a little teenager, him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken from Judah to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar during the 70-year captivity. Do you recall that? 70 years because, because of Israel's idolatry, their disobedience to God, they're now in captivity for 70 years. Now, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's an old man, and he's studying the scroll of Jeremiah, and it suddenly occurs to him the 70 years are almost over. And he gets excited. And in Daniel 9, verses 2 through 12, you don't need to go there, but just take my word for it. You can see it. He begins to pray. And as he prays, he's confessing his sin. And he says things like, we have sinned, we have rebelled, we have not obeyed. Uh, you know, forgive us. What, what's he talking about? Daniel wasn't, you know Daniel's life is almost impeccable. He wasn't an idolater. He wasn't rebelling against God, but he identifies with the nation as a whole. Now I know what some of you are thinking. I don't like the idea of being guilty of a crime I wasn't there to commit. Can I get an amen? Me too. But don't you believe you're in the line of Adam? Yes or no? 
Were you there? I asked you a question. Were you there? Were you there in Eden? Were you there in Eden? No. I wasn't either. But would you deny, based on Romans 5.12, that you became a sinner by nature and by choice as a result of Adam? You find yourself in Adam, do you not? Yes, you do. Yes, do I. Bad English and all. We've accepted that. All people come from one man, Adam, physically and spiritually. Now hang in there. There's really some super cool good news coming. So hang in there on it with, with that same principle. So don't forget it, okay? All, secondly, all hearts have one color. All hearts have one color. Red. You can autopsy an African-American, an Asian, a Hispanic, an Arab, a Jew, a white guy, and they'll all look the same. They'll all look the same. You want to see some unvarnished racism here? Look at Numbers chapter 12. Here's an obscure passage. Here, here, is, here is, well, look, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Because of the Cushite woman, Cush is south of Egypt, so this is, the, this is where the African man emanates from. So she's black. Because, the, uh, again, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now they spoke against Moses, so God judges them for it. This is, I believe God put this in the scripture just for us just for us, dealing with this subject. So what happens to Miriam, who comes against, against Moses? God curses her. Look at verse 10. When the cloud removed from, from, uh, removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like what? Like what? Like snow. <laughs> I love what Piper says. He says, you like, me? You like uh, light-colored skin, Miriam? I'll give you light-colored skin in the form of leprosy. So here is, here's Jesse. Samuel shows up at the house. Who's going to be the next anointed one? So he's, he's parading one stud muffin after another in front of, uh, of Samuel, you know. <laughs> These are, and all of a sudden, here comes a little pipsqueak David. And what does Samuel say? Man looks on the outward appearance, but what? God looks at the, say it, looks at the heart. So here's Peter. He's racist. He's a Christian racist. The gospel is purely Jewish, or so he hopes, so he thinks, so he wishes. He's having a dream, goes into a trance. God lets down in this dream this sheet with all of these unclean animals are in it, and God says, get up and eat. He said, no stinking way. No, get up and eat. No, I'm not going to do it. I, my lips are not going to touch anything that's unclean. And God says to Peter in the dream, don't you call unclean what I have declared to be clean. And he gets it. Peter gets it. God has expanded the gospel beyond the Jew. For God so loved the, the world. And he gets it. And he says moments later, truly understand that God shows no partiality. I love that. And later, in the famous Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, when they're arguing over circumcision, you need to become a Jew before you can become a Christian, and they're going back and forth, Peter stands up and says, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. 
Only one color in all of our hearts. They're all red, right? Number three. All who believe the gospel are in one man, Jesus. This is where everything turns. There's neither Jew nor Greek, Paul wrote to the Galatians. Neither slave nor free. There's no male or and female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. And we don't like the idea of being guilty of a crime we, uh, that we weren't there to commit. But we love the idea of benefiting from an act of obedience we couldn't commit. Look at that. Stare at that for a moment. If that doesn't unearth your hypocrisy. We're all in Adam. Physically and spiritually. And those who trust in Christ are the beneficiaries of the one man. How cool is that? Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans. If many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. We who have trusted in Jesus are the beneficiaries of the one man, Jesus' obedience. His, listen to this, his, now listen, his obedience unto death became the avenue of his righteousness being transferred to our account. How cool is that? Hallelujah! So all who believe the gospel are in one man, Jesus. And lastly, all future worshipers of every color, every nation and language will gather in one place in heaven. And all we got to do is look at the scripture and after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, John writes in Revelation, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages and colors, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Hallelujah. So how do we bring this to a conclusion? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Three responses toward becoming our little mantra around here. More people, more like Jesus, on the matter of racial differences. I've already given one to you, but let's just double down, shall we? Remember, low responsibility isn't no responsibility. No race holds superiority over another. Amen? We are one race, the human race. Listen, you don't have to be a card-carrying member of the KKK to be a racist. Because low responsibility isn't no responsibility. And if you have any racist tendencies within you, repent. You are an affront to the gospel itself. I don't care if you're, if, it's, if you're white, if you're black, if you're Asian, or if you're Hispanic, if you are racist in any way. I got a text after the first uh, message from one of our African-American uh, members who said to me, thank you, thank me for the message, and thank you for calling out my own racism. That's a pretty humble response. I should say. Low responsibility isn't no responsibility. Secondly, and this is where it 
it gets really good for me. I, I, I love this last couple points. So hang in me as we come to the end. Hang with me if you would. Choose grace over race. Jesus did. And aren't we supposed to be more people more like Jesus? So here's Jesus. John chapter 4. Remember the story? He's got his disciples and they've been going through territory that they're not real comfortable with because this is where all these Samaritans live. They don't like hanging out with the other race. And he sends them off. It's really awkward. So he sends them off to town to buy some food. And they go. And Jesus encounters a woman at the well. Now, I mean, he's stomping on every taboo in the book. He's talking to a woman. They didn't, Jewish men didn't talk to women. You just, not publicly. That wasn't your wife. He's talking, he engages conversation with her. And she's a Samaritan on top of that. You know what that's called? That's called grace. Choose grace over race. He doesn't just encounter and engage conversation with her. He reveals himself to her. That's grace. He also did this throughout his life and his ministry. Remember, he tells the story to his detractors of the good Samaritan. That that enraged them. Remember the story of the ten lepers? They all go off. They all get healed. One comes back. He says, weren't there, ten, weren't there ten that were healed? Where are the nine? And the one that comes back is a Samaritan. And then there's the Roman soldier in Luke chapter 7 who comes. His servant is sick and dying. He's not a Jew. Jesus is constantly breaking the boundaries. And, and even reminded his detractors of, of two of the Old Testament prophets that had grace over race. Elijah and Elisha, and he reminded them that he, in, in Luke chapter 4, that he, Elijah, uh, in, a, in a time of drought where there are many widows in the land, helped the widow of Zarephath, a foreign woman, not a Jew. And then there's Elisha, who heals the Syrian general Naaman. Remember that? You know what that's called? That's called choosing grace over race. This is grace without discrimination. If you want to know what it means when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, this is what it looks like. Choose grace over race. And finally, this might be my favorite because we're coming to an end here. See the sin under the skin. Hey, look, I'm not getting gushy-ushy here. We're still talking gospel here, right? Go back to the lady, the woman at the well with Jesus. Does he just, is he just showing grace in the sense of being nice to her? No, he gets right down the nitty. Remember the conversation with him? He doesn't get into her ethnicity. He, they're talking. He says, she, he goes, hey, go get your husband. Remember that? She goes, well, I'm not married. He goes, I know you're not married. Actually, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. Oh, busted. What's he doing? What's he doing? What is Jesus doing? He sees the sin under the skin. He gets right to the gospel. But the disciples, remember, they're the ones who went off to uh, go shopping. They come back with the food. And if you read the context, all they can see is the skin. They're not care- they don't care about this. What are you doing talking to, and you're talking to a Samaritan? I mean, they can't get beyond the skin. And this is half of our problem. 
see the sin under the skin. I mean, after all, we are talking gospel here, aren't we? Isn't the fact that Jesus died for the world, that just you just forget about whether they're white or black or Asian or Hispanic or pink with blue polka dots. I don't care what they look like. Christ died for them. They need to hear the gospel, amen? Are you willing to cross cultural boundaries for the sake of the gospel? Jesus did. His disciples did. They had to learn in the process. You, his follower, can too. If, indeed, you're a follower of Jesus. Because some of you need to take heed to the fact that you were born in Adam. And that's where you're stuck right now. Wouldn't you rather become a beneficiary of the one whose act of obedience, you weren't there to commit. <laughs> you couldn't even commit it. You couldn't die for your own sins. But Jesus did for you, right? And that's gospel stuff. If you've never trusted Jesus, that's where it all begins, becoming one in him. Amen? Let's pray. God, thanks for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that even when we deal with the sensitive subject of racism, the gospel comes in. And as all of us must recognize that we are one in Adam at birth and in life by nature and by choice, we can be one in Christ and with one another across every race line, one in Jesus if we accept what he did for us and receive and become beneficiaries of his grace and his love for us. Recognizing completely that Calvary covers it all. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand.